0: Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is John Matthews. John is the former president of the International Bonhoeffer Society English Language Section and the author of Anxious Souls Will Ask, The Christ-Centered Spirituality of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. John, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome, and uh, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. I've been looking forward to this for a while, and uh, you are recently retired, I hear.
1: Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, three days ago, I completed 44 years in the ELCA, the Lutheran ministry. Along with that, I am also an adjunct instructor at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, but the parish work of 44 years, uh, yeah, three days ago ended, and now I experiment and try to succeed at uh, retirement
0: (laughs) well congratulations i'm sure that's a, a huge achievement and a lot to look forward to in this next season um how we usually do this podcast is a little bit to get to know you uh for anyone who's listening who's maybe not familiar with you and for me um just to get to know you a little bit and then we can jump into more bonhoeffer related questions um but the first question i have for you is bonhoeffer related um it is How did you become interested in Bonhoeffer?
1: Yeah, I think back uh, quite a few years for that because often someone will have heard something that someone else said. Well, I think I was probably in about 11th grade, that is in high school, when my local Lutheran pastor quoted Bonhoeffer's ethics. And of course, now I can't remember what that quote was, but as a part of us, this is back in the 1960s at the peak of the civil rights era. And my pastor there uh, quoted Bonhoeffer. When I got off to college a couple years later, I remember browsing the bookstore and seeing at that college bookstore, a couple other books of Bonhoeffer's and sort of pick them up. They weren't class assignments for anything. but pick them up start to read and uh, the more I read the more I began to see that you know Bonhoeffer's questions and some of his answers or the discussions um, sort of met me where I was at I would in hindsight say that he became for me from that early time that college time especially a kind of theological faith uh, conversation partner I did that in college and read more books by him just i say for the fun of it but getting off to the seminary i was able then to take a full semester course at luther seminary in st paul by jim burtness who i didn't know then but have learned since um because i finally did an mth thesis under his direction at luther um he was in the Bonhoeffer Society and pretty uh, significantly connected to those doing work in the 1960s and 70s on Bonhoeffer. So at seminary, I had another course, full term on Bonhoeffer. And then leaving seminary and going off to the first parish that I served, I became active in the International Bonhoeffer Society. I interestingly spent a week with Eberhard Baitka in 1975. Yeah. Um, in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, where he, gave lectures to about 15 of us at a retreat house for a full week. And following that, I began to make connections with Beitka's family, as well as other Bonhoeffer um, family members and colleagues from the Confessing Church. Back in the 80s, you see, a lot of those persons were still alive and active. Hmm. And so mine went, or my interest, or my uh, kind of sometimes obsession with this, had to do with uh, meeting more people so it it took it from kind of an intellectual just master's level interest in this to a real rich life experience as I met more and more people both related to and somehow connected to Bonhoeffer in Europe but also in this country then the scholars who were spending lots and lots of time understanding and interpreting his uh, legacy. Wow, um,
0: so I haven't read the uh, the big uh biography, but uh, my familiarity with him is mm-hmm. through Bonhoeffer's writings and through uh, just other biographies about him. Um, mm-hmm. What was he like um, for someone who actually sat in the room with him and, and learned from him?
1: Yeah, um, at that time, Baitka had been spending time in South Africa with John DeGrucci, uh, especially, lecturing on Bonhoeffer's theology, and what that was like, living through the time of the Confessing Church and the Nazi times, and he was being called to South Africa because uh, apartheid was being challenged, and church people, some, were looking for theological resources and support, and they found that in Bonhoeffer, so Beitka was invited there to speak, give lectures um, about that, and so when I met him first in '75, he had just come back from South Africa and had given those lectures. And so hearing him talk about the relevance of that for today, but then also he was constantly making reference back to his days with Bonhoeffer in the uh, you know, Confessing Church days, but also just his personal relationship with him. So again, that was Eberhard Beitka, but then the more our relationships kind of expanded and broadened, um, I was able to spend time with other members of the Confessing Church, students of Bonhoeffer's, in Finkenwalde at the seminary, mm. and then also that expanded into Bono for his family members, I mean his nieces and nephews, his sisters, so yeah, that was, uh, I should say, that the life, kind of uh, life-giving conversations there just had a kind of uh, energy that you don't quite get from reading the book. <laughs> One of those experiences too, which I found, you know, profound, was during that same week in uh, in Fitchburg in 1975 we were in Massachusetts well one of the afternoons and evenings the retreat director there had contacted Maria von Wedemeyer Veller who was then working for uh, Honeywell in Boston she came over and spent the evening and having that conversation with her had a certain uh, gravity to it also seeing both what she had to say hearing that but also then with Eberhard Beytke and those two in conversation. And they hadn't been together much since the war. So, yeah, those those personal contacts were, were life-giving and uh, rather dynamic, actually. Wow.
0: Uh, that sounds so fascinating, to be a fly on that wall. Um, yeah. Wow. Uh, so you mentioned that you uh, were your time as the president of the International Bonhoeffer Society. Um, how was that? What what, yeah. what does the job entail? What was your experience like?
1: Yeah, that I came up through this, a different position, so let's go back just a little way. Uh, Clifford Green, the president of the society back there in the 70s and 80s, into the 90s, I think, he had asked me if I would be interested in editing the quarterly newsletter for the English language section. I said yes at the time. It was a chance to get to know more people and to serve the society in that way, so became editor of that for, I don't know, five or six years at that same time, I was very active in the meetings and in these relationships with people in the society here. So um, I was asked to be on the ballot for the vice president place position, and I did. And that was, I can't remember, several years. And then after the presidency passed from Clifford to Jeff Kelly, and then from Jeff Kelly to Michael Lukens, um, following the Rome 2004 International Congress, which Michael Lukens and myself co-chaired, Michael was stepping down, and then I was asked in what 2005 to to be uh, approved to be the president, which I was then from 2005 to 2010. As a part of that presidency, I was on those committees and even chaired, actually co-chaired the um, the Rome Congress of 2004. The Prague Conference of 2008 and then into the Swedish uh, Sigtuna Conference in 2012 Hmm. so that was it that was exciting not only to manage and kind of hold things together in the English language section but that as president of that it also allowed time and connections to uh, deal with the German section especially so yeah it's a way to serve the society and uh, I suppose also benefit a lot because of all the people that you get to meet
0: Oh yeah, it sounds like it So you, throughout your time Being the, uh, the president Of the International Bonhoeffer Society And up until now Jenny um, McBride, we know has, uh, uh-huh. Is the president now How have, right. you, have you Seen any changes in Bonhoeffer Scholarships in, in Bonhoeffer scholarship rather um, Any focus, any kind of emphasis That is different from the time that you were uh, The president
1: Yeah, I think there's change. Um, What comes to mind immediately is that with the completion of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer works in German and then the Dietrich Bonhoeffer works English edition, 16 volumes plus an index edition, um, that puts out there at this point in history virtually everything extant, everything that can be located, not only his original things, but also letters, I mean, correspondences and memos and sermons and all. And so history and scholarship in the future will no doubt pursue certain dimensions, even creatively with his work, which will always be life-giving and good. But back when I began in this too, we had his six-volume Bonhoeffer, six-volume Schriften and uh, de Welt was a collection of some things and then there were these isolated tomes and articles and that's how academics would research his material. And frankly back then a lot of those had been translated, um, I don't want to say in a hurry, but what the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Works English edition now uh, enjoys or is is well known for we not only had all a number of decades of scholarship now but also i think the translators and then editors uh, were far more qualified than those original editors um chosen by the bonner society to translate and edit each of those 16 volumes so that's clearly a resource that was not there so uh, for anybody studying now to have those things Handy's a a really that's a really good thing. I suppose that's a technical thing to have those resources there. The other thing that's I would say uh, how scholarship maybe has some somehow changed this, with the basic spade work done on so many of these things. Now people are able to uh, study and pursue detailed things. In Michael De Jong's work, for instance, on Bart and Bonhoeffer or Hegel and Bonhoeffer, um, Wayne Floyd's work on Adorno and Bonhoeffer, those things, because they have those primary sources pretty well in place, they can now in greater detail be uh, talking about issues and I think with greater accuracy than they ever than they ever could have before. We all know that in the early days Bonhoeffer's study went through um, I mean in the 1960s uh, when the Death of God movement rather short-lived, but when that was active, um, his work was interpreted and studied in one way, Mm -hmm. and then a more historical, contextual, academic study in the 70s, 80s, and 90s took place. Well, that's a, I don't know, a more focused type of study. So we still have people who, of course, use and abuse Bonhoeffer, domesticating it for their own agenda. That's always a risk. Any of us (laughs) writing or doing anything, we we all try to... uh, to get in there. I tried in my own book, by the way, um, a little short one for Lutheran University Press, I tried to be as objective as possible, describing what I thought was Bonhoeffer's Christ-centered theology, and then through each of his books, primary books, and some sermons, Hmm. and I got to the end and I had the chance there to write four things that I think um, Bonhoeffer, you know, fell a little short on, whatever, Um, with all due humility, but the reality is um, I I wouldn't want to finish a book like mine and then say that my book is somehow the definitive text now or the end-all interpretation. So I think anybody who's spent a lot of time with this knows that we give it our best shot. We know more now than we knew before, but we still are all, you know, making conjectures and suggestions. We hope is faithful to what the record is, but, you know... I guess time will tell whether that's, that's in fact the case. <laughs> Definitely.
0: Um, so ha- what we normally do on the podcast is whoever I'm speaking with, um, I usually read their book and then uh, kind of interview them about their book, uh, kind of highlight the main points. When we got okay. connected, you, uh, you seemed really adamant that there was a specific title that you had edited uh, that you wanted to focus on because it was really important. Um, and like I told you in our email, I, I want to talk about what you want to talk about. So, so let's do this. Right. Um, so the 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 book that you sent me, it's called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Follower of the Living Jesus, and it's by Michael T. Hayes. So I was wondering, it says, of course, you edited the, this book. Could you tell us who is Michael Hayes and how did you become connected with him?
1: Yeah, Michael, um, just to be uh, clear and uh, factual up front. Michael passed away of cancer last year, hmm. so we're talking about a book now of someone uh, who worked many years putting that book together, Michael did, but my, my role came in conversations during the end of his life. I saw what he had written and he was hoping to put it in book form but he was getting so weak that he could not finish the project himself. He finished the, the writing of the chapters, but the editing and the final touches and bibliography and some of that hadn't quite been done. So I, during the um, last few months of his life, when he still was, you know, able to talk about these things, um, was with him down in Red Wing, Minnesota, where he lived. And I guess I became committed to the fact that that book, what he had put together, over many years needed to be in print. And we could say, well, why is that? Well, I knew Michael back uh, three decades ago, first meeting him in Fargo, North Dakota, through a mutual friend, uh, Burton Nelson of North Park Seminary, who had been the vice president of the Bonhoeffer Society here for quite a few years, meeting Michael through Burton back in Fargo. uh, Then I continued that relationship when he moved to the Twin Cities, and we did some conferences together. He became a very good friend. That's what led me to knowing as he was nearing the end of his life that what he had done, um, assembled, you know, needed to be out there for people to read. Okay, that's kind of the setting. But the reason for that is in the subtitle of the book, uh, An Authentic Evangelical Appreciation, Michael's a covenant pastor uh, out of Fuller, in California, and he was a self-professing evangelical who studied and loved what Bonhoeffer had to write and the challenges for discipleship today. But Michael was also self-critical of his own evangelical conservative brethren in the ways that they had misconstrued or misrepresented or misinterpreted Bonhoeffer. So, the uniqueness of this, I got to know him, and then knowing that this is what he had been working on, um, near the end of his life, I said I would take that manuscript, and with his wife, just helping me get things together, um, I thought, I think Michael had searched for a publisher, but because Michael did not have academic credentials, he was a covenant pastor. Mm -hmm. um, University Press and others said, well, he didn't quite have the the right initials behind his name, and so they weren't going to publish it. Uh, I went to Lutheran University Press in Minneapolis that I've worked with, and, you know, they of course said, well, this is our covenant pastor. We don't usually do that. I said, well, now's the time to make an exception. <laughs> they said, since I was a ELCA Lutheran pastor and teacher at Augsburg University, that if I would be willing to do a forward, and edit his work, and see it through, that then they could by their, what, institutional bylaws or something, uh, we could do that through Lutheran University Press. Mm-hmm. So we did, and uh, it put it in place. We'll talk more in a few minutes and other questions about exactly what the content of that is, but I just saw a need for an evangelical writer to give this rendering of Bonhoeffer, which was both faithful and true, not distorting Bonhoeffer's stuff, as I knew it, but yet could possibly speak to evangelical people who might otherwise reject some of the Bonhoeffer stuff because they didn't quite understand the context. So I saw a real need to have that in print. So that's what took our friendship into then me being the editor of his book.
0: Well, I think you've done us a real service by doing this. I I really enjoyed the book, Um, I've mentioned this in in previous episodes, um, I, I probably would be categorized as a conservative evangelical as well. Um, Mm -hmm. so I'm, I really enjoy reading things like this that are geared towards, I guess, my ideologies and pointing out the, the differences I want to be a Bonhoeffer scholar, so I'm 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 not afraid to run across things that are different from my worldview and and uh, and learn from them. I'm, I feel like I'm fairly open-minded, uh, right. but it was it's great to see someone give such a full treatment in that specific tone. I guess I, I hadn't read it uh, read a book like it before. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I've I've really enjoyed it. So <laughs> thanks for putting it together.
1: You bet. No, and I and that goes probably quickly into things that. Michael was able to take key elements in evangelical theology and piety, I mean, the notions of salvation and scripture Mm -hmm. and uh, church and ethics, those which are really strong commitments for evangelical Christians, and see the way in which Bonhoeffer talked about those, And you see, because Bonhoeffer's witness and his testimony, his life sacrifice makes an impression on human beings across the spectrum. Then what happens is that those same persons from across the spectrum will somehow often use Bonhoeffer to support their case. And the risk is, is that Bonhoeffer's particular uh, ideas can be stretched, you know, we say domesticated, to fit what a person wants them to say. And Michael did not do that. And I don't think you have to, because Mm -hmm. I think on the most fundamental level, Bonhoeffer had an absolute high regard for the authority of Scripture, but it wasn't in a a Francis Schaeffer propositional revelation type sense. Mm But what Michael didn't do was be intimidated by those who said, well, if you don't have that view of Scripture, you don't have the authority of Scripture. And he said, no, Bonhoeffer gave great, you know, credence and weight to the Scripture, but Mm -hmm. let's let Bonhoeffer talk about how that Scripture had authority. So, yeah, he would come at it aware of the key important elements in evangelical theology, but then letting Bonhoeffer speak to those Without distorting what Bonhoeffer said, does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: definitely, and that's something that I, I'm just now. I'm I'm still learning about all of this. I'm trying to work through the the whole Dietrich Bonhoeffer mm-hmm. works as I do my thesis, and so I'm currently in Volume Nine, the Young Bonhoeffer. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I've read the the pastoral phase, Life Together discipleship those sorts of things the, the big titles um, but I figured I'd start over with the very beginning and the very beginning is the young Bonhoeffer the earliest writings we have of him and as so I'm, I'm kind of in the gap there and this filled in a lot um, so I haven't gotten to creation and fall and seeing uh, yeah. sort of his interpretation yeah. or uh, I guess not interpretation but his lectures on, uh, oh. on creation and fall um, was fascinating and made me uh, really excited to get to the point where I read it but it's nice to just have He's uh, Michael, is so thorough and, and gives a, such a good overview of really all of Bonhoeffer's works. I've, just like you're talking about, uh, his emphasis on scripture, um, yeah. kind of taking a, a different route for uh, for I guess inspiration than most conservative evangelicals would take. But the uh, by the end of it, you feel like Bonhoeffer loves loves the Bible more than <laughs> more than you do, <laughs> uh, for sure.
1: Yes, he. I mean, he sure did, and all of you say all of all that you say here is helpful and it's true and I think one way to talk about it too especially in the days since Michael's death (laughs) a year or two ago um, politics and most everything in this country of ours is getting polarized Mm -hmm. in such a black and white either or you know X or Y uh, fashion and what Michael has held up and I think it is true for Bonhoeffer is he has a dialectical notion where we've got to be saying it's not just either or black or white but there's all kinds of nuance and and richness in the in-between spaces mm-hmm. and Michael didn't fall prey to simply saying well if you're a liberal minded Christian you certainly don't have any evangelical commitments and if you're a liberal-minded Christian, you certainly don't believe in the authority of the Bible. I mean, those are either or black and white things. Mm-hmm. And Michael engaged in this conversation, saying, well, how did Bonhoeffer understand? You read this in the book. How did Bonhoeffer understand the authority of Scripture? How did he understand, in this case, while not speaking much about you know, a conversion experience in that term, mm-hmm. I mean, Bonhoeffer's notion that when Christ Is the center of your life as he is the center of creation of course there is a entirely different way that you view things as a Christian but because here's the problem for some is because he didn't use that exact notion of conversion meaning on April 23rd 1963 Mm -hmm. I gave myself to the Lord okay no we have to be careful there because Bonhoeffer was not an American evangelical in that sense but you know the, the polarization that Michael didn't let happen in this book and I saw so respect is, well, that doesn't mean he doesn't know what a converted life to Christ is. It's just that he Bonhoeffer was a, you know, 20th century German theologian and pastor. And that meant certain things. Mm-hmm. And so he let those be, but then he showed how Bonhoeffer's commitment to Scripture, for instance, um, was so important. So yeah, that, that was, uh, Michael did a great job of that. It's just, this is why, as you can tell by what I'm saying too, is why I thought this book really has to be in print, because if ever there was a kind of apologetic uh, piece of literature where, uh, let's say conservative, but especially an evangelical minded person, might be able to, what, expand and stretch their understanding, mm-hmm. rather than just get into the standoff. Um, I think he... I don't know. I think he does that... Maybe you, you read it too, but I think he does that better than anyone I've seen. Most of the things I've seen are either you would get done reading him about Bonhoeffer and you say, well, that's a conservative, um, more even fundamentalist view. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then the others say, oh, no, that's a very liberal view over here. Michael doesn't perpetuate that standoff.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it which seems I, very middle of the road.
1: Yep. which I Which I think using the word in theology and philosophy, that's indeed a, a dialectical approach mm-hmm. where more than one thing are held in, in in contrast and in tension. But you see, that's the problem with not even conservative evangelicalism, but strict fundamentalism, is there's no room for that <laughs> balance of gray and tension. It's just, it's, it's either not- or. It's black or white. Well, Bonhoeffer's not going to the real Bonhoeffer, and Ma- Michael used the phrase, the authentic evangelical Bonhoeffer, you know, is not going to fall into that. So well, anyway, that, you know, begins to get at some of those issues.
0: Yeah, I think that, uh, I think it's so interesting because I think almost only Bonhoeffer can do this to where uh, if you, even if you disagree with him on several issues, well, he's sure. lived, he lived such a, a, a life, uh, authentic life to the things that he believed in, that it's challenge. it challenges me to just, uh, that's how I got into it to begin with. I mean, when I, I first sure. got into Bonhoeffer, I read a pretty conservative biography and thought this guy, this guy thinks just like me. This is great. I and mean, he has such a great story. And then yeah. I uh, went to school. Uh, I, I went to, I started going to Whitworth university. It's where I go now. Um, He started studying under uh, Dr. Adam Eder, who's a Bart scholar, and he started (laughs) showing me some of the differences. And uh, so I've I've learned a ton, and I found that I've had I've had friends say, "Okay, he's not the guy that you thought he was. Are you still Uh interested? Uh (laughs) You know, because and that's a fair question. But I've found that like Bonhoffer's taught me to really embrace that kind of gray area, just to see a life that's lived. Uh, the way that he he lived and the commitment and authenticity of his life uh, is uh-huh. is challenging beyond those categories that I think that I, I came into the game with. If that makes sense.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I think the question is really whether um, it's a word that's used obviously in theology and philosophy and about, but and Bonhoeffer was against um, ideology where instead of God and Christ and Scripture always being there to challenge us, if we lock in on an ideology, and that could be mm-hmm. liberalism, neo-orthodoxy, liberation theology, feminist theology, if you lock in on a particular uh, type of ideology, the, ch- the problem with that is is that you don't even let the voice of God come in then, mm-hmm. because your ideology has framed what you're going to accept so the question is having come this far by faith and walked the journey each of us have to the age we're at um are we still open that god might speak to us and in in fresh ways Mm -hmm. in a culture and this is where again not evangelicalism but fundamentalism has served us wrong is to place you know the truth of god in a kind of package and whether you're faithful or not is to en- endorse that package, which doesn't allow for much growth, and therefore the risk from that can be is that we just read things that confirm the ideology we've always had. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, yeah, Bonhoeffer, as you've just said, when you step into his legacy, then maybe that's why I was so fascinated by it personally as well as you might have been, is that I, I I agree or I think he's speaking my language, and then the next thing he takes a step where it's somewhere outside of what I've been thinking, mm-hmm. but if I'm open to listen to that, that stretches me to be a better person, a better Christian, a better disciple. But you have to be open to that as opposed to locked into a particular way of seeing things, because he's he had, oh man, name the, name the subject, and he's stretching and pushing, which I suppose leads into that one bigger topic which we could talk about and pause briefly, but then talk about is how this uh, pacifist, and how this person who had a commitment to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, how in the world did he end up living and working with conspirators, mm-hmm. plotting the death of the the Fuhrer. That's a whole thats a whole issue, but it gets down to this too, because many Christians uh, affirm Bonhoeffer and the cost of discipleship, life together, sermons, that sounds all very good, very pious, very Christian, very religious. Then they get to this part of the conspiracy, and if they're not open to look about, think about that in other ways, that would be the person, and there were many of them in the last five, six decades, that would say, well, Bonhoeffer was this faithful Christian, but then as he got further into things, he kind of lost that. Because now he's doing something which is quite challenging. Mm-hmm. And unless you're willing to walk with him and see why, he got, why and how he got there, you can just dismiss it that he somehow lost his faith. Well, here's a statement to, generally speaking, the Guild or the Bonhoeffer scholars uh, that that I've spent, you know, four four decades with, would use this phrase, and probably the other people you've interviewed for this would say the same, and that is, um, while there is change in Bonhoeffer's life because of his experience, there's immense continuity. He not only didn't lose his faith, I mean, he which is why, um, if I were to, you know, cite a book that I think is most interesting, dynamic, you can read all the earlier stuff, but Letters and Papers from Prison, rather than being a, a departure from what he earlier thought, from April 30th on in 1944, you have Bonhoeffer's mature theology coming out in fragmentary ways. Mm-hmm. But again, because it's him dynamically living with the presence of Christ and trying to live in this world, it can appear that this is, wow, this is really different. The scholars that I know would say that there's change in things he thought. There's a, there's a significant and constant uh, thread of continuity there. Definitely. So that's another, another way to look
0: at his, his work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, something I really appreciated um, from his book was this theme of participation in christ this idea of right. living with jesus suffering with jesus dying with jesus rising with jesus uh, those things i i guess i i mean i had it in my head but i guess he he just traces a little bit that theme in uh some of the bonhoeffer works that uh i don't know i i don't it's just a different emphasis uh specifically the the idea of, of suffering with jesus and yeah Yeah, i mean i I hadn't come across that before um and it was really uh, so i'm doing my my thesis is going to be on his theological anthropology so what does it mean to be a human being um what do human beings do does he change his thoughts on what it means to be a human being all those things so i'll I'll definitely be tracing some of that continuity um but yeah that was that was something that as i'm reading it i'm kind of also as i'm doing all these readings for all these podcasts i'm Underlining things for for later um, to see what it means to be a human being and uh, and just the the idea of uh, participating with Christ in suffering and and in life uh, and and in and rising again uh, has was just really powerful to me and
1: I, I really like the way that he he put it. Yeah, he does. As a matter of fact, on the back of my little book, um, the the uh, publisher wanted to put a quote of Bonhoeffer. And it's always tough, you know, when they say, well, what's, what's a single line or something that sort of summarizes? Well, it's a refrigerator magnet, it's the elevator speech, but okay. I had her put a um, quote from the prison writings, faith is participation in the being of Jesus. Now, that's a, you know, at the top of the back of the cover, but he also then went on in that same statement to say that means participating in, as you said, the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, if there's anybody in history of theology, and I've been at this since seminary days in the 70s, who unpacks the the depths of what Jesus Christ means for, as you say, humanity, for persons, mm-hmm. for the church, for the world, it would be Bonhoeffer, because he doesn't just come out, and that's why his question in the Prisoner Writing Tour, he says, who really is Christ for us today? As I said in one of these books I wrote, it's, um, it sounds like a Sunday school question. I mean, who's Christ for us today? Well, you can answer that in a simple way. I mean, he's your Lord and Savior, he's your guide, he's those kind of things. But he is saying that given where the world is at and what the world needs, and in his case, under the shadow of the Nazi vision and destruction of humanity, um what it means to be in Christ, participate in the being of Jesus, will have some unique things. So, yeah, Bonhoeffer's given a theological gift in taking the faith beyond simplicity to the depths of the human community. So, yes, I commend you on that project, too, because the the thing about the humanity, of course, the greatest inroad there, or which you've spent some time on already with the communion of saints, is where, where Bonhoeffer was saying that not only is is uh, christ uh, a social <laughs> a being who connects people and god and others but to be a full human being means to be in relationship with god and others mm-hmm. and then he unpacks that and he just continues to develop it further and further so that'll be exciting for, uh, to, to see what you're what you find and what you end up writing about that too because you're of the next generation that We'll try to find relevance in what Bonhoeffer has written, but in light of the context of your own faith journey.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. i am already, I've learned so much. Um, so that's going to be this, I mean, this coming fall and spring semester, I will just be reading and writing sure. and diving into all of that. Um, I want to make sure I respect your time here. Um, are there any other, I guess, highlights of the book that you think are really important that... Um, that stick out to you that maybe our listeners would, would want to to research more?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I'd like you to know by stating the book and the publisher and all, you're encouraging listeners who have some interest in knowing um, how Bonhoeffer might be read, heard, studied mm-hmm. by an evangelical. Um, yeah, you're hearing one person on this particular podcast who would say, I've read most of the English language literature on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it tends to fall in kind of one or two camps, different sides, Mm -hmm. depending on where you're at, and that he would, Michael, would take on this task of kind of, in an apologetic way, showing evangelicals these parts of Bonhoeffer's legacy which they might otherwise either diminish or even deny. Mm -hmm. If you have an interest in kind of uh, pursuing that, I, I don't know another book. That's why I wanted his that to be published, even after his death. And I don't know where I'm not in the best place, being in the ELCA. I'm not in the best place to promote this in evangelical circles. Uh, but you might be, and I know his own teacher, Ray Anderson. I mean, there are people in that circle, of course, even out of Fuller and all, that I just, you know, how to get this book into their hands, because... My opinion is he does a, just a stellar job in doing that so yeah there's a lot of detail he of course writes the biography of bonhoeffer and tells detail about his story mm-hmm. but then when he gets to the theological part i think it's uh what it means ultimately to be a follower of christ which is central to evangelical concern so yeah there's much that could be done but uh his symbiotic kind of pulling together of uh, evangelical conservative and mainline liberal stuff i I find that dynamic. I,
0: I really appreciate how, I mean, if you are a person who doesn't want to read all of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer works, if you're just getting into this and want to know where to start, what to look at, this is a great book as well, just because he gives, he does give a biography, but he also gives um, a chapter yes. on ethics and a chapter on letters and papers. Uh, so sort of the, the big the big works that, uh, that are famous for Bonhoeffer, he uh, takes kind of the key points and, uh, and gives them a very fair treatment, uh, Very, I mean it really comes off as an unbiased treatment that, that you would be able to, to take that and think okay well I definitely want to read this more and it's just a real, it seems like a really great starting point for many people who are just getting into this.
1: Right and I think from that evangelical perspective to hear Michael talk about the authority of Scripture
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the personal relationship with Jesus Christ which are high commitments for Evangelicals, that you have a fellow Evangelical talking about this, but steering you into Bonhoeffer, who had profound things to say, but didn't use that exact language. I think, yeah, I think a person interested in doing that will find great help here. Fantastic. All right, well, what we
0: usually do to wrap up every episode is a little game of Desert Island. The idea is you're trapped on a desert island. Um, You get to choose one book by Bonhoeffer to take with you, and one book about Bonhoeffer, a secondary source, so about his life, theology, anything, just gotta be about Bonhoeffer. What two books are you taking with you?
1: Yeah, yeah. knowing that's kind of a good way to end, but even discuss this whole thing, um, the first book, which one of Bonhoeffer, if you can only take one, mm-hmm. And that is, um, yeah, I would take the latest version of Letters and Papers from Prison, because I believe that is the distillation. He is now in prison. Um, He is reflecting on his lifetime, you know, 20 years of investment in, in theology and ethics, sociology, psychology. And now, without a huge library in that Tegel prison cell, he is bringing together at age thirty-nine or thirty-eight what what Bono, what he thinks is critical for a life of following Christ. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing, though, is that I would say bringing letters and papers to prison on the desert island would be what I would do. Here's why this podcast, but this apologetic to the conservative or evangelical crowd, uh, could be helpful is that normally Letters and Papers is the book that they would least read. Mm-hmm. But I would challenge them to read that, letting Bonhoeffer speak for himself. Now read Hayes, who puts that into a real context and a powerful one. So I would bring Letters and Papers from prison because it's the, it's the, the summation and it's the stuff that continues to make me think about it. What would be a secondary book? You're saying book about him, maybe? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, my book first. <laughs> yeah, of course I would. Uh, but beyond that, of course, way more. Everhard Bait, because biography is still the best, but it's a thousand pages. And, you know, on the desert island, you might not have had room to pack that. But you got time, there though. Are, <laughs> there are some shorter ones. I mean, a little bit smaller would be Charles Marsh. or But even smaller yet is Christiana Tietz's little recent uh, sort of biography. But... So, you know, those are good books about if you're looking for, um, yeah, a shorter, I mean, Beitka's the longest, but then you could have a shorter biography. But between Beitka and Schlingensepen and Christiana Tietz, those are those are great ones. Um, Michael Hayes would not be bad <laughs> for a book about him, because you get both the detail of Boniface's life, but you also get a... A real Christian, an evangelical commitment to the things that large portion of the body of Christ really is committed to. So there, there's lots of good stuff out there, but anybody, not only scholars like you, but other people should know, is when you pick up a book about Bonhoeffer, if you can, ask who's writing it. Mm-hmm. Factor in what their agenda might be, and know that when you're going through it. Yeah because there is no absolutely objective thing. Right now, speaking of Bonhoeffer studies, um, that's something that's coming up, and it's come up in the area of Jewish-Christian uh, conversation, but it's also come up in terms of human sexuality. People have questioned Everhard Beitka, Bonhoeffer's closest friend, later relative, student at Finkenwalde. Beitka's biography has been been the benchmark and the, the definitive, you know, story telling Bonhoeffer's life. In the last ten years, though, people have respected that, but they've also now as scholars taken some of those things to task, not out of disrespect for Betka,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but part of it is when you live as close as Betka did to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, let's be honest, you have some blind sides, you know, every point of vision is not going to be perfectly clear. It's the most primary source. We learn this even about the New Testament, don't we? Those who walk closest with Jesus, yeah, they had the most direct experience of it. That may or may not have been exactly the most objective. Why? Because their faith experience and their closeness might have skewed a little bit of that. So like with Baker, it's, it's the definitive work, but yet today I just mention it because there are people taking issues with the way Baker understood it that out of respect to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they're asking these questions and even daring to challenge him a little bit. So anyway, letters and papers from prison, ever had Baitka or a number of smaller ones would be fine too, I think. Fantastic.
0: Well, that'll wrap up our time together. I really appreciate you you being willing to have this conversation. Um, Yes, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I, I also, um, if, if anyone wants to get a hold of you for any follow-up questions, it, it usually will um, provide that. And also, uh, it's a, another opportunity to, I guess, plug your books. The book, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Follower of the Living Jesus, An Authentic Evangelical Appreciation uh, by Michael T. Hayes, edited by John Matthews, is available on Amazon. Um, and then if you want to,
1: go ahead and plug your books. um, yeah, uh, the, the one more recent one, which is actually a more, just kind of, it's a descriptive, I hope, mostly accurate book in the Theology for Life series of Lutheran University Press out of Minneapolis. It's called Bonhoeffer, A Brief Overview of the Life and Writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That's a 90 or 100 page, really, summary of his major works mm-hmm. and the controlling theme of Christ the Center. The Anxious Souls Will Ask, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, printed by Erdmans back in 2005. My goal there was to bring out the beauty and the richness of his insights from prison, April 30th and on, knowing that people, most people are never going to go back and read all of letters and papers from prison. I tried to distill out of that some key concepts. Hmm. So that has to do with his latter writings and thinking in prison. This book now in 2011, Bonhoeffer out Lutheran University Press, is more an oversight of his life and writings you know and things that took place over a number of years not just the the prison thing so so those are two and then there is one more of a, you know shameless plug and that sure. would be that I do have there's one only one youtube out there on me talking about Bon I gave a lecture in my hometown of Muskegon Michigan and uh, being presented some some award and they asked for a 45 50 minute presentation if you go to youtube and put in bonhoeffer comma matthews it'll pull that up and then that 45 minute presentation i kind of trace my own journey but then also bring out uh major themes in bonhoeffer and where that might lead today so that's just another resource if one likes to watch youtube rather than rather than read books Mm -hmm. thank you for that space to do that and um I wish you the best on your, your work, of course, and if there's other times to come back and talk about specific issues within the Bonhoeffer legacy, if that finds a proper uh, uh, audience or venue, that'd be grand, but this is what you're doing in terms of getting various people to speak about him. Uh, that's a powerful thing, and I commend you because you've chosen excellent people, uh, the names I've seen before me here, to, to have that conversation. Thank you very much. Oh, well, you're welcome. It's, it's been my
0: pleasure. I'm... I'm- just, I learn more and more every single episode and every every book I read by, by the guests. So um, it's, a, it's a labor of love. <laughs> Great. Great. Well, work. good luck
1: on that, and thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for
0: listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast, and thank you to John Matthews for coming on. You can find John's books and the book we discussed today entitled Dietrich Bonhoeffer, follower of The Living Jesus, wherever books are sold. If you like what you hear, please leave a review in your podcast app. It will help others find the show. We should be back in September with another episode that I'm really looking forward to, and I think you'll enjoy it as well. Until then, as always, thanks for listening.